gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Go to thedispatch.com to check out all our wares and hopefully become a uh, a member of the Dispatch community. Um, we can um, really use your support. I mean, things are going really well for us, membership-wise, but we have such grand ambitions. Um, and so many, many needs uh, that if it, just every listener to this podcast became um, a monthly member, it would enable us to uh, do all sorts of just amazing things. So if you think you can do it, if you have the, the, the means, that would be um, really great. Enough of the pitch. Okay, so wrote the G-File today. If you listen to my conversation with Yuval Levin, and I don't. I cannot get my mind around the idea that you wouldn't want to do that. Um, I kind of previewed it, which in my own sort of superstitious way is bad luck because whenever I come up with an idea for something that I mull on for um, a day or whenever I jinx it by talking about it out loud before actually writing it, it never turns out um, to be as good or as, um, popular as I would hope. So maybe I didn't jinx it this time. I don't know. There are, there are, there's less jocularity in it, jocularity in it than some of you have come to expect. So be it. Um, but these are not really particularly jocular times, are they? Um, so just in case you didn't listen to the Uval conversation, I'll give you a very brief summary of the idea. Um, I think that Look, there are wrote a whole book, Suicide of the West, right? There are lots of reasons for why our politics are as awful as they are these days. And Donald Trump is just one of them. And he is not he's not the cause of most of these things, but he's made a lot of these things worse. You know, as 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 I often like to quote Orwell, where he said, you know, a man can feel himself a failure and take to drink because of it and become all the more of a failure because he drinks. Um a lot of conservatives uh, took to Trump because they, they thought conservatism has fa- had failed and conservatism become even more of a failure because they took to Trump. And um, I stand by all that. Anyway, but that's neither here nor there. There's also, you know, these other things I've been talking about for a very long time about identity politics and tribalism and negative partisanship and polarization and all the rest. And, you know, whenever I go on a, whenever I speak to audiences, which is, you know, rare these days because of the pandemic and because of my position on the Trump stuff. But, um, you know, one of the questions that I get from audiences, whether conservative or liberal or sort of middle of the road business or students or whatever, is how do we get the hell out of all of this? And most of my recommendations involve these big, grand 40,000 foot things like teaching people gratitude. Um, explaining to people that, you know, for 10,000 years, poverty was normal or 250,000 years, poverty was normal. And then it's only changed once because of this fantastic thing called liberal democratic capitalism. Um, and all that, and you've heard me do that spiel a million times. And, you know, I, sometimes I'll talk about civics or, you know, federalism and localism. All those things are like big, heavy lifts, generational struggles that require marshalling all sorts of, you know, um, political will and resources that, uh, shockingly, I do not have at my, my disposal. And then sometimes if I'm getting a little more personal, like I did in the last week's podcast, I'll talk about how the really important stuff is really close to home and these, these microcosms of the family and friends and, and all of that. And that you, if you get that stuff right, if everybody got that stuff right, I think our politics would be a lot better. But as we discussed last week, before I had my little meltdown, um, one of the reasons why our politics are so bad is because people, because families are suffering because families are coming apart because communities are coming apart. And so people are, are questing for meaning and belonging, um, from politics and from the tribal versions of politics. And that just fuels all that. So the, you know, there, there are lots of things. This is an overdetermined phenomenon, but 
one facet of all of this that I actually think is fixable and doable. I mean, there are, there are like 35 people that if I could persuade them, um, they could substantially change America for the better. And that's the argument I put in the G file today, which is just simply this, um, because of the media polarization and the partisanship and the polarization in the country and all that, basically we have, you know, they're not, you know, I don't want to get all Ben Sass here, but it's really not two nations. It's, it's two groups, sub it's two subgroups of the larger country that are addicted to Twitter, that are addicted to cable news, primetime stuff, that they're either all in for Tucker and Hannity and Laura, or they're all in for Rachel and whoever the hell is on MSNBC at night. I don't know. Um, and uh, the result of that is part of the part of the problem with that is that those hyper politically addicted wannabe angry types um, have an outsized role in the primary process. And as I've talked about a zillion times, I think primaries, the primary system is one of the things that has eroded our political system. And, um, and the sort of media saturation stuff makes it even worse. And the example I always use, you know, was, was Ron DeSantis when he ran for governor of Florida. Now he, I will stipulate up front, he's turned out to be a better governor than he was a candidate because I thought he was an absolute horrible candidate. And I don't mean like he was a bad campaigner, like, you know, uh, Loeffler or something like that. I meant that what he, the way he campaigned was dishonorable. Um, he was the guy who ran ads where he like politicized his kids, which is always for me, one of like those bright red lines, um, uh, particularly when they're little and, you know, he's, he's got his, he's got his, his infant in a MAGA onesie and he's wearing a MAGA hat and he's reading from the art of the deal to his toddler and then there's another scene where the toddler is building the wall with Mexico. And he's like, we're going to build the wall. And, you know, and DeSantis would go on any Fox News show he could possibly get on and just blindly suck up to Trump on the theory, which was correct, that Trump would eventually endorse him, not because of any policy issues, but because Trump is always movable with uh, sycophancy. Um, and it got to the point, I remember watching one of the, the daytime shows on Fox, and they had an interview with DeSantis's opponent in the Republican primary. He was this good guy, comes from a political family in Georgia, serious conservative. And I think he was a congressman at the time, not sure. Um, and the Chiron, you know, the, little, the lower third ID under this guy during this interview just kept emphasizing Donald Trump has endorsed um, this guy's opponent, Ron DeSantis, and um, which I just thought was a terrible thing to do. And um, and as Charlie Cook, who became a big DeSantis fan as governor, he lives down there. Um, but you know, he and I would rail about this about how the governor of the sovereign state of Florida should not be going out saying that he'll be taking orders from the head of the the executive branch of the federal government. It's just it's not what federalism is about and all that. Anyway, he turned out to be a better governor. But my point is, is that DeSantis figured out, much like Ted Cruz and a lot of these people, that the way you actually campaign for the early primaries of the Republican Party is by um, just living in the Fox News green room as much as is conceivably possible. And that has ramifications because that you start just talking for that audience. That audience has specific expectations. You rev up that audience. That audience shows up in the primaries and rewards you for it. And so the lesson, the sort of perpetual cycle continues. And I think the similar thing happens on, you know, with, with MSNBC and all of that. Um, I, I, I think that, you know, we would have had someone different than Joe Biden be president, or be, I'll be president in a week, um, get the nomination were it not for the fact that it dawned on non-politically addicted, non-very online Democrats, specifically older African-American voters in South Carolina, that an Elizabeth Warren or Kamala Harris or a Cory Booker or any of those people um, 
could very well lose to Donald Trump. And so the wisdom and pragmatism of the non-politically addicted, non-cable news addicted, non-Twitter um, part of the Democratic Party saved the Democratic Party from the very online blue checkmark MSNBC addicted types. And um, we didn't get that in 2016 with the GOP primaries. So anyway, but so the point, getting, I'm getting bogged down here. Um, the simple point I want to make is that if you watched MSNBC for the last four years, or if you watched Fox exclusively for the last four years, um, you would have a very weird notion about what conservatives believe and what liberals believe. Um, at Fox, where I'm a contributor, but I'm almost never on for reasons you might guess, um, the whole dynamic is that if you have, it's axiomatic, if you have a problem with Donald Trump, you must be a liberal. So the, and if you like Donald Trump, it means you're a conservative. And um, if you're willing to defend anything Donald Trump does, it means you're a really good conservative. And, um, and so you would hear the criticisms of Donald Trump and some of the things that he did, but they would only come from Juan Williams or Donna Brazil and those kinds of, and, and, and other sort of token Democrats and liberals on Fox News. And, you know, and there were exceptions to this. Special Report had some disagreement and Fox News Sunday, you know, breaks with the party line. But for the most part, if you were just tuning in, particularly just if you tuned into primetime, you'd be left with the impression that the only people in America who have any trepidation or any criticism of Donald Trump to offer are, are, are liberals or crazy, wild-eyed socialists. And we all know that's just not true. And it wasn't true. But if that's if that's what you're telling people, it become, after a while, you can understand why you would believe it. And so the problem is, is that it is just simply not, if you, if in it, so as I get into the, into the G file, I'm really getting tongue tied here for some reason. You know, this is basically a modern media age version of the popular front mentality, which says, you know, for conservatives, it's no any enemies to the right, no friends to the left. For liberals, it's no friends to the right, no enemies to the left. And um, when you have a popular front mentality, when you have a popular front movement, what that does is, is it sets, it creates a situation where, um, um, serious disagreements are considered disloyal to the cause or divisive, and you can't air them out. And, um, you know, on the left, the big popular front movements were either anti-fascism or really just communism or socialism and that kind of thing. Um, and, uh, but on, and today I think the left definitely has a popular front problem. You know, uh, if you watch those primaries and, you know, before the pandemic and stuff, uh, it was all this, it was everybody competing to see who could be the most pro green new deal, the most pro, um, Medicare for all. Um, it was all about purity, right? It wasn't about who had the best policies that might work. It wasn't about persuasion. It was a bidding war to see who could offer the, the very online left the most things that made them applaud. But at least on the left, it was about issues. On the right, it's, it, was, it has become about Donald Trump. And so like literally the definition of what it means to be a conservative is a loyalty test to, to Donald Trump. And I think that's a disservice to viewers. It's a disservice to the citizens because... And, and it's particularly problematic for conservatism because most conservative ideas, in fact, are not that very, are not that popular. And the way um, conservatives clawed out a movement starting in the 1940s was by willing to argue with everybody, including ourselves. We had knocked down, drag out debates amongst ourselves about everything, you know, and this is this point I always make about how conservatives acknowledge their dogma and debate it. And you would have Sometimes the debates and the arguments get really ugly and like, you know, I don't know, uh, Ayn Rand would get thrown overboard and that kind of thing. The Birchers would be, um, as the Amish might say, shunt. Um, but a lot of the time they were collegial and, and fun, even when the, the disagreements were profound. 
And I watch more than is healthy of cable news. And there just aren't healthy disagreements among ideological comrades. I don't hear liberals arguing amongst themselves on TV where they have serious disagreements about public policy. Um, they have serious disagreements about how, how to get power, but they don't have serious disagreements about um, what should be done and whether climate change is an existential crisis or whether we can afford you know, Medicare for all or the Green New Deal. It's, um, you know, there are no, and they certainly don't debate the comparative merits of Trump. It's just a competition to see who can say the meanest things about him. And on the right, at the national level, not on the pages of National Review and not at think tanks and not at, you know, um, and, and, and not at the dispatch, but, you know, at the, at the, on talk radio and on Fox News and on the people whose business models it is to get hits on talk radio and Fox News, um, the popular front just simply says criticism of Trump is illegitimate. You're lending aid and comfort to the enemy. Um, we can't have any friendship or we can't provide any sucker or relief or support for the, for the enemy. Um, and it all becomes, uh, this ethereal, otherworldly version of reality. You know, the reason why a lot of these people marched on Washington, I'm not talking about the proud boys and the other goon squads, I'm talking about like the normal, um, civilians who just sincerely believe that, um, Donald Trump stole the election. You know, you know why they showed up in Washington? It's because Donald Trump, but also Lou Dobbs and Gene Pirro and Sean Hannity and Rush Limbaugh um, and all of those guys, you know, and most of the guys at, at, at what, Sinclair Radio and, and so on and so on, told them that the election was stolen. And that's, a, you know, that's sort of a grave <laughs> problem. And it, the people who disagreed on a lot of these shows with the idea that the election was stolen, if they were invited on at all, which is actually pretty rare, they're all liberals. And it was basically now the fact that the election wasn't stolen was just another contested opinion that is offered by liberals rather than an actual fact. And you can go down, you know, the last four, the rabbit holes of the last four years where it was like this. It was like, you know, the, Try to make try to make the case during the first impeachment that there was merit to the impeachment case. Um, it's pretty easy if you're a liberal, or if you want to go on liberal outlets and do it. Very hard to get booked on anything on Fox News, um, never mind talk radio, and actually make the substantive case that there was merit to the the first impeachment. It's hard to get on talk radio and Fox News now. Not as hard because fortunately, like the Fox News side, the news side is actually reporting facts, but it's still kind of hard to get that voice heard among that world. And how much better off would we have been if these kind forget, forget the stone election stuff, because that's so depressing and such an extreme example. But what if we could have just had people debating various policies from within, you know, from shared first principles, but serious prudential disagreements about implementation or prudence or policy or whatever, um, that would be a good thing. And as I close out the G file, I'm just I'm gonna finish talking about this, is um, you know, the fact that it would confuse viewers to hear liberals on Morning Joe robustly disagreeing with each other about defunding the police. And I don't mean arguing about how it was bad messaging or arguing about how it was distorted by conservatives and Fox News. I mean, like, legitimately having one serious liberal, and there are many, forthrightly say, this is an incredibly stupid idea. And then have another committed liberal say, no, it's not, and here, here's why, and have them debate it. It is an insanity that the, and I know insanity isn't supposed to be used that way, but that's what came out of my mouth. It is insane. Um, for liberals to allow their ideological opponents to say all liberals believe that we should get rid of the police. But they handed Republicans and conservatives that because they refused to forthrightly 
say, this is stupid until it was way too late. And that, you know, and that's the strength that you get from allowing internal debate and dissension is that you make it clear to people what you're for and what you're not for. And you give people permission to choose sides. You know, one of the reasons, you know, Bill Clinton was the first president, Democratic president to occupy the White House for two terms since FDR. And one of the reasons why is that he was actually willing to pick a big fight with the rest of the Democratic Party about how it had lost its way. And I think my credibility about it being a Clinton critic is, is pretty solid. But, you know, that whole, I'm a different kind of Democrat, um, the whole DLC project, the whole idea of uh, saying that welfare needs to be a hand up, not a handout. Um, I mean, I think his killing of Ricky Ray Rector was, the execution of Ricky Ray Rector was grotesque virtue signaling uh, to conservative voters that, that he was pro-death penalty because Rector was mentally, you know, handicapped. But, um, uh, but you get the point. Those, those sister soldier things, he was picking fights with Democrats to convince people outside of a bubble that he was a different kind of Democrat. Picking, and, and, and to be fair, Donald Trump picked those kinds of fights. I mean, not those kinds of fights because he didn't pick intellectual fights, but he picked serious fights with the Republican establishment. And that was one of the things that drew people to him. It was just that once he got in power, he was like, there should be zero tolerance for any more fights and any more debate for I am Cheeto Jesus and I shall rule you all. And, but this is how conservatism came up is that we did debates. We had arguments, you know, mostly in good faith, mostly civil. And if conservatives are going to prove to people that they're not, that the alt-right is not part of the conservative popular front, that the Proud Boys are not part of the conservative popular front, they have to forthrightly say, these people don't speak for me. These people aren't part of any cause I am part of. But instead, because we have to rally around the president, we have to social, social, show support for the president, this popular front mentality is seeped deep deep into the grain of conservatism. And it's terrible. And so I, that's basically what the GFL is about. But I am reminded of one thing that I thought, you've all made a really good point that um, I want to expand on just slightly. He pointed out that, um, oh, and by the way, listeners, since I'm not reading the ads anymore, I don't know where they're going to appear. So don't expect me, I, some listeners really like my segues, but some really hated them because they kind of felt like they were being head faked and they didn't want to commit to what I was building up to for fear it would turn into a plug for a kitty litter company or something like that. So I won't be doing that anymore. I kind of miss it. I thought it was fun. But um, uh, the Caleb, our producer, he will figure out where the ads go, not me. So um, don't feel like I'm setting you up for a head fake. Um, but you know who likes head fake? No, just kidding. Um, so anyway... You've all made this very good point, and it's actually a point I've written an enormous amount about, and I've kind of and I kind of forgot at the time when we were talking about. He was saying how you know this is part of his indictment of both parties is they are no longer arguing about what to do, like what to do to help people, what policies to propose, how to solve people's problems, um, how to pay for things. Instead. The obsession is about power, about how to get power, how to hold on to power, about winning versus losing rather than doing versus or do, versus doing. And I think it's a really important point. And um, back in the before times when conservatives had these kinds of debates, I used to write about this a lot. And um, I don't know if I talked about this on the podcast before, but I don't know, in 2005 or something. Um, uh, Peter Berkowitz, I don't know if he's still at Hoover or not, but when he was at Hoover, he put out these, this two volume set of books and one was, uh, varieties of progressivism in America. And one was varieties of conservatism in America. And the varieties of conservatism in America was exactly the kind of thing I'm talking about. It was a series of essays from a serious Catholic, Catholic, um, sort of, uh, theological conservative or social conservative arguing about 
arguing from first principles about why his version of, of conservatism was true and right. And then there was like a neoconservative who was arguing about how their version of conservatism was true and right and so on. And, and you know, a libertarian minded person and a this and a that. And these were the kind of things, all of these kinds of essays could have appeared in one in truncated form, probably in National Review, because under the broad ideological or intellectual coalition of the right, all of these different perspectives um, are allowed to one extent or another, even if they spark disagreement and debate, because they're about first principles. They are about, the, about, about philosophy, about right and wrong, right? And then for the varieties of progressivism volume, it was five different essays about how to take back the White House. It was really kind of amazing. And I'm being a little glib and unfair, and I haven't read it in 15 years, but I remember talking to Peter Berkowitz about this and saying, what the hell happened? I mean, it's just weird. It's like they had different thesis questions again. And, and he told me, I don't think I'm speaking out of school. He told me, it was like, I know, I had such a problem. I mean, the way the progressives just hear the question is in relation to power, about how to get power, how to hold on to power, how empowering my group in the Democratic coalition will uh, be the path to the best politics and, and getting on to power. I mean, it's like, it wasn't purely Machiavellian, but it was like there was a very strong, you know, pro-labor liberals saying, okay, the, the secret to sort of winning is by doubling down on helping unions and strengthening the labor movement. And I am sure that on the merits, philosophically, that author believed that, but it was still sort of in relation to power. And then there was someone who was all about feminism and, you know, and that's blah, 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 and civil rights. And it wasn't different sets of philosophical orientation. It was different perspectives of how my part of the coalition should be in the driver's seat. And, um, and it seems to me that one of the things that has changed over the last few years with conservatism is that it is moving in the same direction, where it is now more about winning in power and uh, which voters to activate to get power. And the policy issues are secondary. The philosophical issues are very secondary. Um, and it's not, it's not uniform. I mean, you know, the, the nationalist guys, there's some people there who seriously believe in philosophical precepts, and it's not purely about getting power, but a lot of it is. And, um, and that makes me really sad and um, makes me want to, like, pull on this thread more and write about it more. But I, I do think that that's, it, it triggered sort of a Nightingale song thing. It triggered this old argument I used to make all the time about, the difference between the progressive coalition and the conservative coalition um, when you've all said that. So um, what else to talk about? Um, so I, you know, I, I know I've been a broken record about how the real incitement. So let me put it this way. Let me start this way. The, uh, my, my dear friends and colleagues at advisory opinions, they spent an enormous amount of time. And it was very interesting talking about whether or not Trump actually technically incited violence according to the Brandenburg standard of incitement and First Amendment jurisprudence. And I think it's all interesting. And obviously, if you could prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that Donald Trump did that, um, it would make impeachment easier, right? I mean, if he had said, instead of the stuff he did say, if he said literally, go down there right now, right after I'm done and kick in the doors, smash the windows, storm the place, grab Nancy Pelosi, we're taking this country back. I think that would be that you would have to be a very dumb person or a very twisted person to still argue that wasn't incitement. But he didn't do that, right? But that would meet the Brandenburg standard. The Brandenburg Standard says that not only do you have to use insightful rhetoric calling for imminent violence, but that it also has to be foreseeable and likely that imminent violence will occur because you say it, and I believe 
there then has to actually be imminent violence, right? So it's this very complicated, very high hurdle to pass. And I'm sure I butchered some of that. But the, one of the reasons why I don't care very much whether I butchered that is I don't care at all. I don't care if he meets the Brandenburg standard. And the argument I've been making a lot is that all of the lying about how the election was stolen is enough for me. That's the incitement. You know, if you convinced me, truly convinced me that, um, you know, a Democratic president had stolen the election the way Donald Trump and those guys describe, if the, if the evidence really was on Trump's side, I still don't think I would condone violence, but I would understand it and find it even, I mean, somewhat more forgivable. Because, I mean, that is, as Tucker Carlson has said, would be one of the greatest crimes in American history. But it was a lie. But a lot of people actually believed it. And the people who spread the lie, including Rudy Giuliani and, you know, heartbreakingly Bill Bennett and a lot of other people, the people who convince people that, I don't want to say necessarily they have, they certainly don't legally have blood on their hands, I don't think. But they have real responsibility for what happened on January 6th. And the fact that they just wanted to pressure Mike Pence and Congress to cave to the threats of a crowd, even if the crowd remained peaceful, to me is just like manifestly impeachable. What they wanted them to cave to do was to steal an election and violate the Constitution. It's just, I mean, I, I, and, and keep in mind, I am not like on a Trump derangement syndrome high here. I've argued for almost, what, 16 years now, whenever he did it, that um, the one truly impeachable act that George W. Bush committed was when he said in front of television cameras that he's going to sign the campaign finance law, even though he thinks it's, he thinks it's unconstitutional. That's a violation of his oath. So he, he said parts of it are unconstitutional, but basically he, he, he violated his oath to uphold and defend the constitution. Now, I don't, I, I think it was an impeachable act. And to be honest, I would rather live in a country where it was treated as an impeachable act. I mean, I think George W. Bush is a, is a truly decent dude and whatever his mistakes, he's an honorable man. Um, but my point is, is that I would rather live in the kind of country that took the constitution so seriously that it would impeach a president for doing something like that. But that's not how we do our politics anymore. And it's now generally believed that the Supreme Court is not merely the guardian of the constitution, but at that, it's the sole guardian of the Constitution, which is a very different thing. It used to be in the House, in the Senate, and I think it's probably still on the books, that if you, if you question the constitutionality of a proposed bill and it failed on a vote, I don't know if it was a majority vote or a two-thirds vote or what, but if it failed on the question of whether it was constitutional, it just killed all discussion and you moved on. Um, the The... Members of Congress, members, members of the House, members of the Senate, they take an oath to uphold the Constitution, too. And, um, and I wish we lived in a country where everybody who took those oaths took those oaths seriously. Um, but this was different. This wasn't George W. Bush just going with the general tide of how our politics has grown to work on these kinds of things. This was a president bullying and intimidating his own vice president to, to unconstitutionally steal an election. And I just, you know, what's, a, what's an impeachment for if not for that? And the fact that he revved up millions of people, you know, I, I was looking at these Pew numbers. I mean, it's, it is crazy uh, depressing. According to this new Pew survey, 80% of Trump voters over the age of 50 incorrectly believe Trump definitely won the election. 80% of Trump voters over 50 believe that Trump won the election. He didn't. 67% of Trump voters who are college grads hold that view, and 82% of Trump voters without college degrees believe it. Now, that is just, I mean, uh, I don't know if those lies by themselves are impeachable, but uh, I suspect that they are. But regardless, the damage that he's done to the country is huge by doing this, and it's going to take years to unwind that. But more to the point, by telling people that these lies were the truth, um, he was trying to use mass peer pressure to, to steal an election. 
And anyway, so I've been making this point. I know I'm regurgitating a lot of this crap, but I've been making this point for a while that the lies were really the real incitement, not according to the frickin' Brandenburg decision in 1969, but according to common sense and according to a generally decent understanding of politics and statesmanship, which are the standards that are implied to an impeachment. An impeachment is not a criminal trial. Listen to the Keith Whittington podcast we did the beginning of the week and we get into all of this. And that alone, I think, is uh, enough, right? But I've been thinking about it and I, I'm still shocked at the ability, at, at the receptivity of so many conservatives to believe these lies. You know, I mean, the, the, the Trump campaign initially said, we just want our day in court. And then court after court after court after court, some 60 courts rejected all of this. And, um, and their response was, okay, well, that's rigged. They're just terrified of, of dealing with the facts here. So we got to go to plan B and plan B was working on the legislatures. And then plan C was basically January 6th. Um, and I just don't, I honestly don't think that because I, I still think that in their hearts, most conservatives, you know, including, including yes, most Trump voters are decent people and they're not idiots. Um, but I do think that something has happened that the, the disordering of people's ability to receive and understand facts um, which is affected in part by that stuff I was talking about at the beginning about how our media works on these things, but, um, was disordered in part by the need to reconcile the cognitive dissonance that comes from, um, having once believed the character matters, the constitution's everything, limited government, yada, yada, yada. Um, and the actual living example of Donald Trump. And I, 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 the more I think about it, I think the more it was, you know, how the only safe harbor over the last four years to be a Trump supporter at the end of the day was, well, there were two, there were two. One was sort of the take what I would call, and I don't mean this derogatorily because I, I, I love Andy McCarthy dearly, um, but sort of the Andy McCarthy argument, which was this is a deeply flawed person, but the policies are good. We're getting what we want. And for all his personal defects, um, he's generally being constrained by the institutions and all the rest. And Andy, again, basically has, has revised that opinion since the election. But that argument, which I've argued for years, that transactional argument um, was intellectually defensible. I still believe that. Um, I don't agree with it. I have lots of problems with the cost benefit analysis that people did with it. But, you know, among my friends at National Review, among my friends um, and family members, uh, that tended to be the defining approach to Trump. Um, and I can live with that. I'll just have arguments. And I, and again, I don't mind having arguments. Um, but for a much bigger chunk of people, um, you know, and this gets into this point of, I think I've made on here before about how I've become much more of a devotee of evolutionary biology. I think that we have a really hard time as a species believing that our leader of our tribe, our big man is a bad person or is a bad character. And um, and then you factor in the relentless barrage of enforced conformity of opinion from right-wing media. Um, you add in both the real and the caricatures of the asininity of the left over the last four years, or the last 40, I don't care. Um, and you create this sort of unmooring effect where people become detached from their previous standards, and they start bending their standards 
to Donald Trump. And they convinced themselves that they haven't changed. They still love the Constitution. They still love limited government. They still love freedom and democracy and capitalism and all that kind of stuff. But they've decided that Donald Trump is the steward to lead those things. Because the other safe that's the other safe harbor, right? So the one is the transactional. The other safe harbor is just to say, I put my faith in Donald Trump. There was this amazing tweet. I wish I had called it up before we started this. Um, maybe we'll find it for the show notes. Uh, some libertarian account who's like, liber- who's like Twitter bio is free markets, limited government, uh, you know, liberty for the individual, something like that, um, that has a serious number of followers. They tweeted the other day, um, my first loyalty isn't to democracy. My first loyalty um, isn't to freedom. My first loyalty, I can't remember if they said Jesus or not, um, but something like maybe my first loyalty isn't to Jesus. My first loyalty is to Donald Trump. And that's nuts, right? But as I argued at the beginning of the Trump presidency, when that Julius Crying guy tried to start a sort of egghead journal of Trumpism, um, it's very difficult to have a coherent ideological program that you're willing to defend against smart people who disagree with you if you hitch it to a personality, particularly if you hitch it to Donald Trump's personality, because he will contradict himself on all of these things a million times a month. And you either have, basically you have to, you have to play the principle or you have to play the man. And Trump beclowned an enormous number of people who claimed there was a coherent ideological program to Trumpism. He did it to Steve Bannon and and various nationalists. um, And he did it to Crines. And Crines, to his credit, after Charlottesville, said, I can no longer support this guy. Because, you know, the Donald Trump they all wanted him to be and then put in paper about what they thought he was, was never going to conform with reality over the long haul. And so the only safe harbor, the only place where you can never be proven wrong is if you just say, in Trump, we trust. If you just say, whatever he says is true, if he changes it tomorrow, so be it. There's a great Hannah Arendt quote about this, about how, you know, the point of lies wasn't just to deceive the public, but it was to make the public malleable to whatever um, the leadership said the next day. And I think that's sort of what happened for a large number of people who don't care that they're not consistent because the real consistency is supporting Donald Trump. You know, that's that thing about, you know, behind almost every double standard is an unconfessed single standard. The single standard was Trump is right and his enemies are wrong. And for a bunch of people, um, the, the lies of January 6th or the lies after the election, um, that was just the latest installment. I mean, you, you needed to soften the targets for those lies to find purchase. And that happened over the last four years. And an enormous number of people, um, I think, should be held to account for all of that because it's, it's done serious damage. I'm almost done here. It's been another crazy long week, you know, with the... The longest month I ever spent was the week after a bunch of people beat up cops with blue lives matter flags. Um, but, uh, I just want to say again, I know I mentioned this on the Thursday podcast with Yuval. Um, and I'm now I mentioned it on Twitter, how unbelievably moved and grateful I am for all of the support from everybody for my, I, I, you know, um, I don't know what I'm supposed to call it. Um, for, um, as a lot of people weirdly used a lot of the same language for revealing my humanity, which feels like a really weird thing to sound. And I don't intend to, to sound boastful about, you know, <laughs> I'm so human. <laughs> um, uh, but I'm really grateful. And I know I haven't responded to everybody because it got kind of overwhelming with people sending me notes about the loss in their lives and how they've mourned and um but it was um i'm really grateful and you know after i recorded that thing i said to caleb and to uh, nick um look 
there are a bunch of places where I had to pause. Can you just cut them out? And in fact, cut out, if you think it's all too exploitative or, or morose, just cut out the whole thing. And, um, they both argued for keeping it. I thought they trimmed it down a lot more, but apparently, um, they left in, I still haven't listened to it. There's no way I can listen to it. I don't listen to this podcast cause I was there when it was recorded. Um, but, uh, I, I'm glad it, it had the impact that it did. There are a bunch of other things I wanted to sort of talk about, you know, um, I think the only other time I ever broke down and got choked up on here was may have been the first solo remnant. I'm not even sure. It was one of the first where I talked about how that scene in, um, Saving Private Ryan always gets me where, um, um, at the very end where he's looking at Tom Hanks's grave and says to his family, you know, tell me I'm a good man. Anyway, I don't want to do this again. So, uh, but you know, one of the things that got me through the, the crap show of, of after Chantal died was, you know, you just think about, you know, the, the thing, you know, when people are saying, are you sure you want to do this? This is, you know, it's expensive and it's a lot of work and you've got this family vacation plan and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, you can wait. And, and, you know, the thing that I just kept saying to myself and to them was, look, the only thing that's getting me through this is I'm trying to do what my dad and my brother would want me to do. And I think that this is one of these things that, um, you know, I talked a lot about the sort of unchurching of America and the secularization of America last week. And I think this is one of these really sort of interesting topics. And I'm, I'm trying to power through this so I don't get all bogged down in morosity again. But, um, you know, it's funny, you know, in China and a lot of other societies, you know, there aren't religions don't, you know, not all religions involve, you know, a heaven and a deity and, um, you know, a kingdom of heaven and all of these kinds of things that we're sort of used to in the, you know, in the religions of the book, you know, from, you know, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity and that kind of thing. Um, ancestor worship was a, huge driver of human behavior for um millennia all around the world and um i never you know i i i wrote about this briefly once recently but i really i think it's a much more interesting topic than i used to in part because first of all any any anything that's on the list of human universals you know this is this thing that this sociologist Don Brown first came up with about how I think there were over a hundred of them now. Um, you know, every society in the world has, um, certain commonalities, you know, like belief in, you know, that taboos against incest or taboos against murdering relatives. And, you know, and as I often say on here, there's never been a society in the history of the world where people didn't show favoritism towards, um, you know, first kin, but then friends over strangers. That's just part of our wiring. And I don't think that ancestor worship per se is one of the human universals, but it does show up in lots and lots and lots of societies over time and over the globe. And there must be something about it that pings part of our psyche. Um, that's really important. And, you know, thinking about maintaining the memory of, uh, your ancestors or your parents maintaining, uh, you know, about living up to their example. Um, there has got to be a pretty significant Darwinian payoff to that. Um, and I want to be very clear, you know, when I talk about things like Darwinian payoff, that doesn't mean I'm some sort of materialistic atheist who doesn't believe in God or um, thinks that religion is just a bunch of superstition. I, that's, that's not me. I, in fact, do believe in God, and um, even though I'm not particularly religious. And um, but you know, as the as some of the 
the sort of uh, Thomas, you know, uh, uh, you know, Catholic theologian types will tell you, and certainly a lot of the Jewish theologian types will tell you, that simply because there is a rationale or an analog or a benefit in nature for a certain behavior um, doesn't mean that's the only explanation for it. Um, you know, this is a big debate that you get into with things like kosherism. There are some people who believe that kosherism caught on simply because it was in a, in a, in a, in a time and a place long before refrigeration, it was a pretty good dietary code for keeping from getting sick, right? You don't eat bottom feeders, things that eat their, that hang out in their own feces, um, basically pigs, right? Um, but other things as well. Um, you have strict rules about separating, you know, milk and meat, whatever. Um, and I certainly think that there is something to that, but I don't think that's all it is because it was also a covenant with God. It also has, you know, there are also things that are kosher that are pretty freaking gross. Um, uh, so it's, I, I don't think it's just that, but, um, let's put it this way. Um, if you are a, it's sort of like the success sequence, you know, which I talk about all the time about how if you delay, um, if you delay getting married until after you've gotten as much education as you can and you delay having a kid until you get married and you do these things in the right order, your odds of being poor shrink dramatically. It doesn't mean, um, it doesn't guarantee you'll be rich, certainly, and it doesn't guarantee you won't be poor, but the odds of you being poor shrink to almost nil. Um, you know, uh, it's just, it's one of these, it's a hedge against poverty. Um, that's not the argument for why you should wait until you get married to have a kid or why you should wait until you at least graduate high school or college before you get married. It just turns out that the right thing to do has payoffs in a market economy. And so similarly, I would argue that in um, a state of nature, there are certain moral right things to do that have payoffs in terms of propagating uh, your genes and making sure your line lives on. Um, and But that doesn't mean uh, that's why you do them. I mean, this is the argument I you know, got into a bunch with a lot of people about dogs where there are a whole bunch of people who have written over the years about how dogs are, and I've written in response to them all over the place, but, you know, there's this argument that dogs are social parasites, that they have just figured out how to milk food and shelter out of human beings. And it's just a cynical ploy, and they're con men. And this used to be a very popular explanation about dog evolution. Um, And obviously, look, there's, there's some truth to it if you look at it from the right angle but at the same time the dogs don't know that the dogs just love you right the dogs evolved to love you and it may be that you know um there's an evolutionary advantage when there is an evolutionary advantage to signing up with dogs dogs are the you know do- dogs are the only animals that have chosen to be with us rather than other animals and um and there are advantages to that, but you know they've now done like at Emory and these other places these MRI scans of dog brains, and they've confirmed beyond a shadow that your dog actually loves you, um, at least if you are a lovable human and don't mis- mistreat it. And um, and so that's sort of the point I'm trying to make about like sort of evolutionary behavior. Um, uh, lots of evolutionary psychologists have talked about how you know belief in a deity. Um, and having a common religion that binds the um, the tribe or the polis together to get it to have um, better relations among strangers within the group um, uh, is an evolutionary advantage. Right? I mean, this starts with Darwin, which I've talked about a bunch of times, where Darwin says, you know, that you know, altruism and solidarity and um, an ability to work together virtually guarantees that one tribe is going to out is going to outcompete a tribe that doesn't have those qualities and eventually that kind of stuff is passed on and i think religion plays a big 
role in it. It doesn't mean the religion, the particular religion is wrong or that religion qua religion is wrong. It's just that's part of the role. And I think that's it's probably not what Will Herberg meant when he talked about homo religio, but I think it's part of why human beings are naturally religious is because religion provides an evolutionary advantage. And this is a long way of getting around to something that I was going to talk about for a half minute, um, which was this idea of honoring your ancestors or ancestor worship. Um, because I think that this idea of not embarrassing or not shaming your, never mind just your family, but your ancestors, um, plays a really similar role in really interesting ways. And it keeps popping into my head when I think about how, you know, all I wanted to do during all that was do right by the memory, you know, do right by Chantal, of course, you know, and we had conversed about what she wanted, but also doing right by what my dad would have wanted me to do. And um, anyway, I think it's, it's interesting. And um, I guess one last thing about this crying thing, um, which again, I don't, as I said on Thursday, I don't want to be the Bernie Birnbaum of podcasting and, you know, just constantly squirting a few tears to get support from people. Um, I'm not trying to minimize what I did. It's just, it's a very awkward thing and it feels weird to have gotten such huge feedback about something that I felt kind of embarrassed by. But, um, um, true story. My first national review cruise, um, was good Lord, 21 years ago. And it was back when Bill Buckley was alive and, um, and hosting a lot of the panels and stuff. And I have, I have Buckley stories and, um, um, and this was a big deal for me. And I was only invited for the second half of the cruise and it was a really small boat. And, uh, it was basically, there was a flight cancellation. So my wife and I had to spend a night in Puerto Rico and then catch up with the boat in St. Bart's or something like that. And it was a real planes, trains, and automobiles, crazy thing. And, uh, fun fact, one of the reasons why I know it was, uh, 21 years ago is that, or just over 21 years ago is that my wife and I watched Al Gore concede, um, not conceive, that would be really different, concede the election um, from our hotel room at the Il Convento Hotel. Um, I think that's what it's, it's definitely Convento. I just don't know if it's Il Convento. Um, maybe it's El Convento, um, hotel in San Juan. Um, and, uh, you know, it's like, that was my, where were you when thing? And anyway, the next morning we get on the boat, I'm late for the panel. I rush in. I'm nervous. I haven't been at NR for very long. It's the first time I've been invited. At that point, I had only met Buckley a couple times to shake hands with him and that kind of stuff. And he's Bill Buckley. And I get, you know, and, and basically I don't have enough time to shower or anything like that. I just got to throw on a jacket and tie and race down to this dining room and get on this panel. And the panel was something about the, um, I don't even remember what it was about, to be brutally honest. Um, but we were, but the topic came up about, you know, how Bill Clinton was, I think Bill told one of those jokes about how, um, you know, when asked Bill Clinton could tell, could, when asked to cry, Bill Clinton could, could respond, which I, or something like that. Obviously he told it better. And then it got into a general conversation about, um, public figures crying in public. And Bill had one of these, you know, polysyllabic, um, uh, crazy sentences with all of these, um, words that I didn't understand. And, you know, even back then I was a word guy, but it just was, and I was so frazzled and sweaty and whatever. And, um, all I can remember is that he started talking about George HW Bush and his weepiness and how, um, well, that could go too far, blah, 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 something, something, something. And then he wheels on me and says, but surely, Jonah, we wouldn't consider um, excess lachrymosity to be disqualifying for gentlemanliness, qua gentlemanliness, would we? Or something like that. And I had no idea what lachrymosity meant, which 
um, means a tendency to weep or cry, I believe. I hope the story will be ruined if I have that wrong. Um, uh, cause it's, I remember the story basically entirely because that's how I remember what lachrymosity means. Yeah. Weeping or inclined to weep. And, um, um, uh, and I can't remember exactly how I got out of it, but I think I just told a bunch of jokes about how happy I was to be there and, um, what a crazy trip it was getting there. And then I said, Oh, and by the way, I think I forgot the question or something like that and got him to ask it a different way in context so I could answer it. But that's how I remember what lachrymosity means. And I promise, uh, we will not have an excess of lachrymosity on this podcast, but I am deeply, deeply grateful, um, and touched and moved by the feedback that I got. And, um, I just wanted to say thank you about all of that. And, Hey, the next time I do a solo uh, ruminant, um, Donald Trump won't be president anymore. And um, for all the obvious reasons, but some non-obvious ones, I'm really looking forward to that. So uh, thanks again for indulging me. And um, I'll see you next time. Sure.